Welcome to the Invisible India podcast. I'm Jessica. And I'm Abhishek. We are a cross-cultural couple doing life in India, exploring the lesser-known mysteries of Indian culture, interviewing fascinating figures who have chartered new territories, and sharing life as we raise our multicultural family amongst the complexities of modern Indian life. Hey guys, namaste sablog. Thank you so much for an incredible 2020 of your loyal following. I am so grateful for all of you who have been a part of this community, who have participated in discussions, sent in questions, and connected with us on social media. It's really been awesome how connected and present you guys have been with these conversations on the Invisible India podcast. Sunni ke liye baad baad dhanyavad. In 2021, we have some incredible guests coming up, and I am so excited to bring forward more Indian stereotype breakers, great thinkers, and people who are making a difference. And of course, we will be sharing our own personal experiences, thoughts, and observations of cross-cultural life, marriage, and all about living in India. I wanted to invite you to participate with us in new ways in 2021 through considering becoming a Patreon supporter. Patreon is a community where you listeners, subscribers, or consumers of our content can support artists and creators that you appreciate and gain from. We have three tiers set up starting as low as $3 a month. If you've gained from this free podcast we put out twice a month, please consider jumping onto Patreon and becoming a part of the community where you can be more closely connected with us and get your personal questions answered. Share your thoughts and even have a chance to have a shout out on the show. And of course, the higher the tiers get, the more benefits that you get. So go ahead and check it out. Thanks for considering supporting us. The more support we have, the more we can put into making this podcast even better. So go on to patreon.com slash invisible India. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash invisible India. And you can see how you can be closer connected with us in the upcoming year. All right, let's get on with the show with Craig Storty. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Invisible India podcast. Jessica here. Today, I have with me Craig Storty, who is an author, speaker, cross-cultural consultant, someone that I have looked up to for a long time, and I'm very excited to have him on today. So welcome so much, Craig. Thank you, Jessica. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so glad to have you on. So we want to hear about you, about your work, about your books. And um, Craig has written seven or eight, he tells me, cross-cultural books in this space. He's lost track by now. And um, make sure and listen all the way to the end because we are going to be doing a giveaway of the book that we're going to be focusing on today and learning about is Speaking of India. So we're going to hang on until the end. We're going to we're going to get into that a little bit later. So, but first, Craig, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, how you got interested in India, how you ended up on that part of the world? Um, as I was telling you earlier, I'm actually from Vermont uh, in the New England part of, uh, of the United States. Had a very kind of uh, non-cosmopolitan background. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and then uh, my journey, as you call it, began the Peace Corps. This was an English teacher in Morocco for a couple of years. And then after that, I actually came back to Washington and, and worked at the Peace Corps headquarters for uh, five or six years. And during that time, I met my wife, who was with the Peace Corps in Nepal. And when we got married, uh, while well, she was living in Nepal, I moved there. And that was my first exposure to, to the Hindu culture. It wasn't India, it was Nepal. But the mm -hmm. southern part of Nepal, as many of your listeners will know, is high, uh, heavily Hindu. The northern part is, is more Tibetan in some respects. Mm -hmm. When I came back, when we moved back to the States from India, I did some Peace Corps trainings in a number of countries, and then I decided that I was an intercultural expert. So I tried to see if anybody would pay me for that. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, slowly, slowly, I developed some clients, developed a business. My wife had a government job, so she got a paycheck, paycheck every two weeks, and that gave me the freedom to write books and and build a clientele. And as I was telling you earlier, in the in the early to mid-90s, many uh, U.S. companies were using uh, resources in India to help them with the Y2K problem. And so many of my clients suddenly started asking, do you know anything about India? Can you help us understand Indian culture? And so uh, for, for a large percentage of my work, it was helping mostly folks in the U.S., but some folks in the U.K., to understand the Indians that they were dealing with every day. Mm -hmm. My some clients would send me to India. Some of the clients, uh, some of the um, uh, folks they used in India would hire me to train their people. So in the, in the years between 2000 and now, I, I, I've gone back and forth to India quite, quite a few times. And, and most of what I write about in my book is, is stuff that I, well, it's all stuff that I experienced. And um, I, I know that some of it will be I'm sure will be of interest to your audience. Yes, well, certainly of interest to me, which is why I was so excited to get you on the podcast. Um, you know, I first read Speaking of India, your, your book, in 2006, when I came to India for an internship. And my boss told me, this is required reading for this job. And your findings really set a... A foundation for me not only for the workplace but for a framework to understand personal relationships in India and it really provided a solid solid foundation eventually then I learned Hindi and married an Indian and the rest is history but um, you're speaking of India is really focused on workplace relationships but a, a lot of what you have said in this um, in this book really applies to personal relationships as well. Um, so I'm just curious how you landed there with the, um, the workplace relationships that you had. Um, you know, how, how did you develop personal relationships or did, did your personal relationships inform your work race, workplace relationships or how did you kind of learn um, so deeply about Indian culture? Um. A lot of the things that I knew, I actually knew from very close personal relationships with people mm. in Nepal. Mm -hmm. uh, they were Hindus. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I, I have not had that kind of relationship with most of the Indians I subsequently ended up working with uh, in my consulting and training mm -hmm. practice. And I realized as you were talking that 
that that foundation of almost daily interaction, developing really close uh, re personal relationships, that's probably why I knew as much about India as I did. Because when I actually went there to do work, I, I'd never worked in India. I'd never mm -hmm. worked within corporations. Right. Um, but I, I understood right away from what my clients were telling me that that you know you you know a lot about India, and I thought, well, okay, as long as they think that, <laughs> whether it's not, it's, it's true. <laughs> now that it, it is true, and really the foundation was two years of very uh, lovely friendships with with Hindi folk, with Hindu uh, folks uh, in Nepal. Now, of course, subsequently, I I have developed some personal relationships with Indians, and of course, a lot of business relationships. But that was kind of the foundation. I'm quite actually interested to hear you say, and I must say, a little bit proud, that you found that even though the book is focused more on the workplace and business interactions, that that wasn't so much what you were after, or at least what you related to, but apparently some of the things that I spoke about uh, actually speak to interpersonal relationships as well as uh, quite uh, ins inspiring for me. I'm quite encouraged to hear that. <laughs> well, let's dive in a little bit more into the findings and, and the, the, the really the juicy stuff about of the book. Um, one of the most pivotal or aha moments that I had while while reading your book and understanding the, your way of thinking about India was how you talk about indirect communication versus direct communication. And this is one of the most crucial points that I've had to kind of reframe my thinking around and understanding life in India my own work relationships, my now personal relationships, my husband, my in-laws, everyone in my life pretty much now that I live in India, um, <laughs> uh, that indirect communication versus the direct communication. One of your theories is that when in these kind of professional office settings, when you're working with when you have a Westerner and when you have Indians, um, that Westerners are, sometimes we can be a little dense and it's hard for us to be able to learn the indirect communication style. So one of your suggestions is, sorry, Indian friends, but you're probably gonna have to learn how to communicate directly because the Americans, the Westerners probably aren't going to be able to do it and catch on to your indirect um, do you want to, can you talk a little bit more about that and how you fleshed that out? I think maybe since I wrote the book, though, a, a revised edition did come out, I think, in 2015. Okay. I, I've, I've understood a little bit more about that. But yes, the communication style factor is, is, is key. And um, one thing, you're, you're absolutely right. It's possible for Westerners to figure out indirect communicators, but it's not going to happen very fast. And so with the Indians who are, especially Indians who are working for supporting Western clients, uh, the, the, uh, rightly or wrongly, the burden is, if the, if it isn't, if the burden isn't on them, it's going to be faster for them sure. uh, to, to learn our way than it is for us to learn theirs, though people should, of course, try. Yes. And one thing I realized, and I wonder, Jessica, if you would agree with this or, or your husband, um, one thing I realized is that I think, and in my experience, when Indians are talking peer-to-peer, -peer, 
they're just as direct as Americans are or Westerners are. But it's when a, 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 a junior person talks to a senior person, a younger person talks to an older person, a direct rapport mm -hmm. talks mm -hmm. to a manager. Then in the Indian culture, you, you just can't communicate the way you do peer-to-peer -peer because it would be disrespectful, uh, impolite, and quite rude. So what I now tell Indians, I'm not sure I actually ever said this in the book, is that, you know, you, need, you guys know how to communicate directly. It's the way you talk to people at your level. And yes. believe it or not, it will mean you have to go outside your comfort zone, but that's what you need to do when you talk to senior people in the West, because that's the only way they're going to understand. And trust me, it won't come across as disrespectful. And so I know it would in Indian culture, and I tell them that, and I know it's a stretch for you, but mm -hmm. it's really what will work. Gotcha. And the consequences of not doing that, you don't want those, neither, neither to those folks you're dealing with one. That's but true. I'll tell you a very, very funny story. I, I do work a lot of work for Deloitte. And um, I had gone to Hyderabad uh, in, uh, at a certain time. And then a couple of months later, I went back to Hyderabad to deal with, the, to, to train some more of the same people. During the first training, all the people in the room were sitting at kind of student desks where you had a surface you could write on. Uh, for the second training, for some reason, they just had chairs lined up, sort of, uh, you know, auditorium style. And when I went in, I simply said to my, my colleague who was setting this up, I said, oh, last time we had desks. I didn't think anything about it. Oh. Uh, we, we discussed the whole uh, way things were going to go. And then just before the students were due to arrive, he said to me, so you want us to bring in desks then? And I didn't, I didn't want them to bring in desks, but of course, that's how an Indian would have told somebody, I would like desks. Right. I just was observing that it was different this time. And so one thing, if, one thing you need to learn as a, as a foreigner is, you know, how would, some of your how would some of your things be interpreted if they were said by an Indian in the Indian, in the Indian environment? That's a tricky one, but I, I just love that story, actually. Yeah, knowing your place in the hierarchy is... Exactly, exactly. Really. Yeah. You've identified, <sighs> my view, and I may say this in the book, it is, of course, a major difference. And where it shows up the most is in the hierarchical relationships because mm -hmm. that's, where the in, that's where the indirectness has to come in. So it, at, at base, it's a hierarchical issue, but it, it manifests in very sure. different communication styles. I wonder in personal relationships... Um, how this plays out. And I know in my own, my own personal life, this definitely applies. If it's an elder person, there are certain things you mm -hmm. just don't talk about. There's certain things you don't say. There are certain things where you have to know your hierarchy in the personal stratosphere as mm -hmm. well. And, you know, yes. are you the oldest daughter-in-law? Are you the middle daughter-in-law? Are you, you know, who, which cousin is older? You know, are you married to this cousin? Are you married to the younger cousin? All of this plays out um, in, in the interpersonal relationships and what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say, who you kind of owe things to and who you don't, uh, who owes you something as far as a favor or things like that. And I just, um, I oftentimes wonder on uh, this, you know, even after 14 years of being involved in Indian culture, it still catches me off guard at times of, you know, there are certain, even with my husband, I'll say sometimes, you know, oh, well, why didn't you tell me this? Why didn't you tell me that? There's certain things he replies to me that you just don't ha say. You shouldn't have to say to someone. You shouldn't have to tell them mm -hmm. 
they should figure it out. It's like, I'm that dumb, honey. You have to tell me. <laughs> but I think in the personal relationships, when it comes to even close relationships, that it can be tricky too. And I think that's such a key aspect that you pointed out between mm. direct and indirect. Well, yes. Um, uh, India is a culture. Uh, it isn't exclusive this way, but it's true of, of many of the Asia Pacific cultures where the message whether it's in families or in the workplace, the message is very often in what is not said. And, you know, American culture, what is not said isn't a message. Exactly. And so uh, that's a fundamental divide. Uh, I was, uh, I'll tell you another story. When I was in Hyderabad, I went down to the restaurant in my hotel one night. I love masala dosa. I love dosa. And I wanted to have masala dosa. This was in Hyderabad. I didn't realize that in southern India, dosa is more of a breakfast food, whereas in the northern parts of India, you can have it any time of day. And so I had a little waiter who was waiting on, on me every night. We were quite friends. And I said, oh, tonight I would like masala dosa. Can I have masala dosa? And he said, oh, sir, that's a very difficult question. And I thought, well, no, you can have masala dosa if we have it. You can't if we don't. And of course, it was a difficult question because they don't serve it in the evening. And, and, and he couldn't tell me, you can't have masala dosa. That would be rude. He couldn't tell me I could have masala dosa because I couldn't. And so it was a very difficult question. And I thought, how interesting. Uh, the, the, the takeaway from that being that not only can you not say certain things, you have to be careful what you ask for or how you ask for things because uh, uh, the, the oh. questions sometimes just, just can't be entertained. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that is too funny. I tell, I was just writing a, I was just doing a web, uh, PowerPoint slideshow this morning for a workshop I'm going to give to, to Chinese people who work with Indians. And one of my takeaways for them is, uh, sorry, uh, they're also going to work with Americans. And one of my takeaways for the Chinese, who in some respects can be indirect, I said, you know, Americans don't read between the lines, so don't put anything there. <laughs> Yes. And that, that's the same. Indians put all sorts of things between the lines. But for us, the lines are what matter. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's so right. Oh, you know, one of the other key things that you mentioned in your book, and I'll just read one a, a quote here from your book, is about talking about the difference between yes and no. So you're you're hinting you're hinting on this now of you know you can't yes. say no sir you can't have the dosa nor can you say yes it's up to you then to figure out what he's not saying is no but he can't mm -hmm. say no to you because you're the client mm -hmm. you're you know you have gray hair you're elder than him most likely and he just he can't say that to you you know um, you're it would be disrespectful so. He, a quote from your book is, of course, Indians mean yes when they say yes. You just have to know what yes means in Indian culture. <laughs> so can you dive into this a little bit of when yes, when does yes mean yes? When does it mean no? When does it mean maybe? When does it mean later? Um, do you have any other stories or other anecdotal things that you'd like to share? Yes. Um, what I tell folks is that in the West uh, and in India, we, have, we all have the word yes, but it means very different things. By and large, 
in the West, yes is a positive response. It means I agree, I approve, I understand, I accept. Most Westerners will hear yes, believe that that issue has been resolved and go on to the next issue. And then I tell people that in many cases in Indian culture, again, more in, the, in non-equal uh, e situations, the word yes by itself often just means the person's listening. They're taking in what you're saying. Uh, they're appreciative that you're talking to them. But it isn't their response uh, to what you're saying. And I tell people, uh, Westerners, effectively the Indian yes is the equivalent of the American uh-huh. Now, if somebody is saying, you're talking to them and they're saying, uh-huh, you don't take that to be their answer. You know you're going to get their answer after that. And I tell folks, that's how you should deal with the Indian yes. Don't take it for the answer. It's uh-huh. Listen to what the Indian says next. And what the Indian says next will, will be the real answer. Now, of course, the problem is Americans hear yes, think it is the answer, and pay no attention to what the Indian says next, which can be quite frustrating to Indians at times. And so they don't actually hear the real answer. But you're right. Some of my clients have asked me, well, okay then, but when is yes really yes? And I say, well, listen to what comes after. If you just get the word yes and no other kind of positive uh, affirmation or positive language, then that's the yes that means we're listening. Know that what you've gotten is a yes. And then the other thing, of course, I tell them is don't listen for no. You're not going to get it. Listen for the absence of yes. Mm. In, in certain mm. contexts, that's a polite way of saying no. You won't get no. But if you don't ever get yes, then that's a no. Mm. So that's what I, that's kind of the, what I what I say about that. But it, it is in one form or another. It's probably the single biggest challenge that Westerners have working with Indians, and that's why again I tell Indians, you know, I know no can be disrespectful, in mm. in your context, especially from junior to senior. But in the West, it really isn't disrespectful. And therefore, by the way, we haven't evolved other ways of saying no as you have, because right. no is not impolite. So we don't need other ways. Uh, you That's need right. other ways. You've evolved them, and some of them we miss completely. You might say, oh, we'll do our best, right. which another well, Indian would know is, that, that, yeah, I'll try. I'll try. Which every Indian knows means this isn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. but Come to tomorrow. Us, I'll try. We'll do our best. That's that's pretty good. Yeah, that's right. right. Come tomorrow. Really want? <laughs> right. Um, I'll have to ask, you know, oh, I'll yes, ask my yes. husband, I'll ask my wife, or... Oh, you know, if you go to someone's home and, oh, my husband's not home, you know, yes, uh, I'll come yes. tomorrow, uh, I will try, um, give me some time. Nice, uh, nice evasions, basically. Nice evasions, right. Polite evasions. And then, yeah. you know, the, the, me as a rookie person, you know, I'm actually coming tomorrow, you know, showing up tomorrow, <laughs> the next day. Yes, um, yes. Or, you know, my favorite one is, you know, okay, well, I'm going to leave now and I'm, I'm going to go. And then they're like, hey, battle, battle, you know, sit, sit down, sit down, which doesn't mean you have to actually sit. It's just, oh, that's okay, I'm going to go. Of course, then there's other, with food, if we're talking more in a personal context, mm -hmm. then just what you're saying is reminding me of this is, um, you know, oh, oh, you know, you know, like, please take some more, you know, and then they start putting it. Um, and, and, and you're like, no, 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 that doesn't mean no, 
you you literally you know even if you want more you still will be like oh nay nay tk it's fine i'm on i've had enough i've had enough uh but then they're gonna pour which which is an invitation then to scoop more on unless you physically yes. put your hands you have to put your hands over the plate to stop it otherwise it's coming on your plate and i think that's another uh you know not being shown as stingy or uh kind of outside mm-hmm. of professional context but there's so many of these little things which which show that there's these indirect ways of of actually saying this that or the other thing and um i i love that there are so many different expressions of yes no maybe evasions which you have to slowly kind of figure out if you're going to live there and especially if you're going to be in a relationship we're so literal, especially in America, and you know, uh, we we just interpret things literally. And in a culture like India, you can, you can't do that. You've got to you've got right. to read between the lines. But we haven't developed that skill. So, I tell the Indians, don't put anything there because we won't see it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant little <laughs> quote there. Um, so, as far as talking about second generation Indians in other countries. Um, one of the things that people often say, if you, if you, you know, browse on social media, if you talk to young youngsters, um, people who are living in multi-generational homes, one of the biggest complaints from, from, you know, Indians who are, have grown up in a Western context who have parents who didn't, People, parents mm. who grew up in India, Nepal, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and South Asia in general, you'll hear people say, oh, my parents just suck at communication. My parents <laughs> are the worst. They're so passive aggressive. They're this, they're that. And I wonder if it's actually not passive aggressive, but if it's indirect versus direct. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I don't think it is passive aggressive. Um, I think it's, well, it's the way they were taught to communicate. And I, I think it, it, it can come across as passive aggressive to, to Westerners who, who have been conditioned in a different way. But certainly I don't think one, in, one, tradi- one traditional Indian would, would interpret another traditional Indian as passive aggressive. I can see how the children of Indians who grew up in the West uh, and have been exposed to an alternative way of of of, um, of uh, behaving. I can see how they would, could interpret it as passive aggressive, but I don't think very many Indians in India find very many other Indians passive aggressive. But what's mm-hmm. happened is that those children have they're at best bicultural, and they may be trying very hard to actually be more like the the nationality, the country they find themselves in. And when they're reminded that they're very Indian, which their parents' behavior will remind them of one way or another, that's annoying because they, they've they got to succeed in the world they're in. And the the less they're reminded that there's a, a gap, the nicer it is for them. But but there is a gap. If, if they're the children of traditional Indian parents, they're going to have grown up with that culture. They may have imbibed another culture in the street at school, but they're going to be the products of two cultures. And there's going to be a there's going to be a clash there. It, it, it can also bring tremendous advantages. I often tell 
uh, the, the children of uh, Indians, uh, expats, that you know you bring to the workplace two, two cultures and two ways of solving problems, two ways of identifying problems, two ways of getting to the bottom of things. Mm -hmm. And boy, any employer who, who realizes that is going to really want somebody like you. Mm. Personally, as you personally, as you point out, it can be a struggle at times. But you know, let's face it: you're American, I'm American. My mother drives me crazy sometimes. <laughs> it's not just not just Indian parents. Sure, <laughs> it's a generational thing as as well. Mm. Well, um, was there anything else, Craig, that you wanted to share as as far as any highlights from the book that I missed, or anything that you think people really need to know about Indian culture that we haven't covered yet. I mean, obviously the whole book is something. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I, I, there's a couple of things. That, I'm not sure they directly answer that question, but there's a couple of things I think you and your listeners might be interested in. Um, mm -hmm. As you can imagine in this world of email, et cetera, I get a lot of emails from people who read my books. Mm -hmm. And I, as I said, I think I've written eight or, eight or nine. I get more emails about speaking of India than any of my other books oh. and more heartfelt and more heartfelt emails about that book than any of my other books. And people just, it, it just uh, explains so many things to them that don't seem to have an explanation that don't seem to make sense. And they're so grateful, as you can imagine, they're so grateful that, oh, now I understand. Because, you know, only when you understand can you be, can you be effective. But I'll tell you a funny story. I have a very good Indian friend who, who now lives in, in England, and he and his wife have lived there for many years. But when they first uh, moved there, um, uh, his wife went through culture shock a bit. And after I wrote my book, actually, Kedar uh, uh, reviewed my book before we published it, his wife came up to me and crying and said to me, you know, that book explains so much that happened to me that I never understood. And that was, a, that was an Indian lady who had been interacting, of course, in the yeah. British culture. Mm -hmm. And there had been so many things that she hadn't understood. And I think by implication, things that had hurt her that mm. had been uh, difficult for her. Otherwise, why would she have been crying, I think? And it was so touching that an Indian lady w would say that. And that was the other thing I wanted to say. You know, whenever you, whenever you, a foreigner, characterize another people, you're really asking for trouble. Because what sure. do I know about? What do I know about Indians? I, I'm not an Indian. And I probably would react if an Indian wrote a book about Americans. <laughs> but um, the, the, the gratifying thing is that I've, with one exception, and I'll tell you because it's a funny story, with one exception, uh, any Indians who have ever written me about the book have thanked me for it also and have verified how, how accurate it is. And I think I may say in the beginning of the book, because it is important for people to understand who read the book, that you're going to hear about Indians in this book from a Western perspective. You're mm -hmm. not going to hear about it from an Indian perspective. I'm not an Indian. Uh, and so, of course, whenever you do that, you run the risk of, uh, well, of, of saying something that Indians don't think is correct. But I think you cover yourself a little bit by saying you're going to hear this from a Western perspective. But the one email that I get fairly often, which is not complimentary, you know, you know Jessica, about the Indian head gesture yes. of seeing your head back and forth. 
And I, of course, I think I say in the book, if, if I, I, I know I say in the book that you know, it can be confusing to Westerners because it, it kind of looks like our no gesture. Now it isn't. Our no is exact, in fact, the same as the Indian no, but this, you know, looks like no. Sure. And, uh, and Indians often use it for yes or just kind of an all-purpose gesture. And right. so I tell folks, you know, don't assume that means no. They're probably just showing you they're engaging. They may even be indicating a positive response. And so the emails I get from a few people, you must take this out of your book. It's simply not true. We never do that. <laughs> and the best story I have about that, I was giving a workshop at uh, Tulane University to an, a new group of MBA students. And there were six Indians in the room, in, in the new class, four in the back, two sitting up front. I made this observation about the head gesture. The four guys in the back got really agitated. And one of them stood up and raised his hand and he said, that's not true, we're from India, we never do that. And as that guy was saying that, the two guys sitting up front were going like this. Like, yeah. <laughs> so I just pointed to them and said, well, some people do. <laughs> That's right. But, um, but I do think you asked about the book. I do think one thing that everybody who reads the book should, should bear in mind is that this is Indian seen through a Western lens because mm. that's who the book is written for. But as you might recall, uh, if you've seen the new version, in the revised edition, there's a whole chapter called, I think, The View from India. Mm. And it tries, to, um, it tries to analyze some of the big challenges that I describe in the rest of the book. It tries to analyze them from, from an Indian point of view. So there's, mm. a, there's, there's a little bit of that in the, in the new book. But um, yeah, I, I, just, uh, I, I just can't say how much I appreciate emails I get from people who, who have been helped so much by the book, li like yourself. It's very gratifying. You know, you, you hope these things happen, but you never know. Your book is out there, and that's that. Sure. Sure. Well, speaking of the book, um, <laughs> for our listeners, speaking of the book, Craig has offered to give a little copy of his book, Speaking of India. And all you have to do is check out our social media account, and you will find out what you can do there. Check out our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to figure out how you can get your hands on a copy of his book. So thank you for that. Um, Craig, I am so thankful that you were able to come on and share with us. I'm very just fascinated by your story and grateful for the work that you've done and that you continue to do. And I think that there's so much more that needs to be done in this space um, as, as Indians and Westerners are interacting more and more and more, not only even on a professional level, but on a personal level as well. And uh, it, it's just exciting times. And I'm thankful for you and what you're doing. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you, Jessica. It was, it was, it was pure delight from, from my point of view. I, I, as you know, this work is so important. And whenever you can advance a little bit of understanding, you know, it makes your day. So this made mm -hmm. mine. <laughs> it makes the, your listeners' days, too. Th thank you for the opportunity. The music for the Invisible India podcast is performed by Christopher Halen Sitar and Ed Hanley on Tabla on Rag Bhim Palasi.